Over the past few weeks, we have talked about a number of individuals whose lives have been changed by Jesus. And as they were changed by Jesus, they went and changed other people for Jesus, right? How does that work? Because changed people should change people. And if we're not changing people for Jesus, then perhaps we need to ask some questions about how much we have been changed by Jesus. And the reality is, if God could do it for these people, then he can do it for us. A lady who is involved in multiple relationships is changed by Jesus at a well. A former prostitute is at a dinner with Jesus and he changes her and she changes others. A short, cheating tax collector who had nothing going for him met Jesus and changed the fabric of his community once he was a changed man. Last week we looked at the story of a lady who was caught in adultery When she realized that no one was judging her because they couldn't, she was changed and her change sparked change in the community. Today we're going to look at a story of another changed man in Acts chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, turn with it. If you want to look it up online, please do so. If you want to open another tab and you're watching at home, please do so. You can also find it in our app as well, where all the scriptures are and all the notes are as well. Acts chapter 3. This is quite a remarkable story, not just because of the miracle that happened, not just because of the conflict and change that this miracle created, but because this miracle that changed the life of this man created ripple after ripple after ripple that changed the eternal trajectory of thousands and thousands of lives. In Jerusalem, in the religious folk, in those who were scattered around the world, and his story had ripples that empowered and fueled the church that we are a part of today. One man was changed, and as Jesus changed his life, 2,000 years later, he's still influencing and changing us. All of these stories of people who have been changed by Jesus have two things in common. There's some universal principles that reflect the gospel in these stories. The first is that every person comes to Jesus in need. The second principle is that every person after having met Jesus goes on to live their life in awe of Jesus. So I was thinking about the the kind of narrative of this story and the other stories we've looked at. And honestly, my story and your story and the gospel story, that's it. We are people who are in need. 
And then we experience the power of Jesus and all we can do afterwards is live our lives in awe. In awe of God's goodness, in awe of God's grace. That's the whole plan. God knows that we're in need and he longs that we we worship him. So he meets our needs. He turns us to himself so that we can spend the rest of our lives in awe of him. Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Now Peter and John were going to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Peter and John were good buddies. Peter and John were the only two disciples that had actual biological brothers in the twelve Yet rather than being closer with their actual brothers, they had formed a brotherhood among themselves. They went fishing together. They prepared the Passover together. These were the guys who ran to the tomb on Easter morning together, right? They did lots of stuff together. Their relationship shows us the flesh and blood brotherhood is part of how we can connect. But even if we're not flesh and blood, there's still a brotherhood, a sense of family that we can share. So Peter and John were going to the temple. They were going to church. They were going to worship. They were going to pray. This was the prayer time in the afternoon. Whether it was daylight sailings time or not, not sure, but it was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, whatever. And at this prayer time, some of the sacrifices would have been made to God by the priests. And after the sacrifices were made, there would be some, some singing and some praying. And it was part of their routine to go every day to the temple to worship God. Now, the first 10 chapters of Acts kind of show this merging of the old um, Jewish way of worshiping, merging to this new covenant Christ-centered way of worshiping. But even though Peter and John, I think it's important to note, were following Christ and were there to worship Christ, they still maintained the important spiritual disciplines that allowed them to meet with God. I think this is really important because if we want to be changed enough by Jesus in order to change others, then remaining close to God in a disciplined spiritual way has to be something we do. If we don't decide to spend time with God, then we don't spend time with God. And if we don't spend time with God, we're not going to be changed by God. Change isn't just a a one-time thing. It's a continual process, right? And to do that, we must keep up with our spiritual disciplines. Peter and John, these brothers, were going to the temple at the time of prayer to keep up their spiritual disciplines, to connect with God, to be close to God, to let God keep changing them. And so they're heading to the temple. And so is everybody else. Because this is one of the most important prayer times. 
But on their way, they met a man who, like us, and like every other character we've looked at recently, had a need. His need was different, but our need is different. Everybody's need is different. His need was that he was lame from birth. And so whenever he went to the temple, he had to be carried there. Now, being lame from birth, unable to walk from birth, was almost like a gateway need. People would look at him, they would see that he couldn't walk, and that created some physical challenges, right? How does he contribute to society? How do we stay connected with him? How does he make a living? How how does he function? But it's a gateway need because that need opened the door to all other kind of needs. Just from the fact that he was lame, we can deduce that he obviously had physical needs. He also had some social needs. Because in his culture, a lot of people thought that he was lame because he or his family had committed some kind of sin. No one wants to be around sinners, especially not the religious folks. He had a physical need. He had a social need. And my guess is when you have those two things going on, there's also a lot of emotional needs happening too, right? He can't socialize well. He's asking all kinds of questions about himself. He's probably carrying some anger and frustration. This is a man in need, physically, emotionally, socially, probably spiritually as well. He does have one thing going for him. He's got some friends, some loyal friends who every day carry him to the temple. Maybe that was someone's job. But they would pick him up an hour or so, I guess, before the prayer times each day. And they would carry him and they would put him at the gate called Beautiful. Now, this is significant for a couple of reasons. One, it was a high traffic area. Now, if you're a beggar and you're a smart beggar or you've got smart friends, it makes sense to beg in high traffic areas, right? You know, you kind of look at the intersection of 436 and 1792, right? Or a Loma and um, 436 too. In fact, at a Loma, there was like an organized um, group of panhandlers And I used to be able to see them, and they would have someone who would drop them off. They would go to eat at the restaurant across the street. They would go and work at rush hour for two hours. And then this guy, and I would call him a a homeless pimp. I don't know if that's the right (laughs) word. Would would go and pick him up and take him to a hotel, right? And I mean, you know, if you're going to be a homeless guy and you're going to beg, you might as well be smart about it, right? And so this guy, it made sense that he went to the temple to the gate called Beautiful because that was a high traffic area. Now, the second reason he was really smart is that when people were going to the temple, 
they were feeling a little bit more benevolent, right? And he was actually at the beautiful gate, which was on the eastern side of the temple, which is where people would donate their alms giving, A-L-M-S giving. Because it was part of the Jewish religion that you would give your tithe, right? 10%, your, your, your first to God. But then above and beyond that, they had this thing called almsgiving, which was a benevolence, uh, above and beyond charity. And so as people were coming to worship, you know, they'd just kind of drop their loose change in this almsgiving. People were feeling benevolent. So this is a smart guy, right? Because he's in a high traffic area and he's around people who are going to give. Pretty strategy. He's got need, and he's doing the best that he can to address it, but his best effort at fulfilling his need does not meet his need. So he's sitting there by the gate called Beautiful. Lots of people going past him. Lots of people feeling benevolent. Maybe he's got his his hat out or his little handkerchief on the floor to kind of collect the money. Maybe his hands are out front begging. Now, I I don't know about you. I'm sure, you know, you've seen some of these beggars and these panhandlers. And one of the first rules about what not to do if you don't want to give is don't make eye contact, right? Because once you're locked in, It just kind of all starts from there. So he's sitting at the temple. Verse 3, he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple. He saw them. He was trying to lock eyes with them. Because once they were able to look at each other, then maybe he had his in to, to make his ask. But he's done this a thousand times, and he's probably looked at a thousand people. So he saw them, he looked at them, but there's no guarantee that they're looking back. So he'd kind of become mechanical in his pitch, right? He looked at them, and then he made his pitch. Do you have any money that you can give me? You know, you see, I'm, I'm lame, I'm struggling, I can't make it on my own. Would you, from your arms giving, out of benevolence of your heart, give me some money? Now, again, how often... When we see those kind of people, right? We're at the red light. They're walking by the car. Do we look down? Do we look across? Do we look away? We look down. We look across. We look away. Because people in need somehow do something to us that changes how we feel about them. We don't want to look at them. We'd rather they weren't there because we really don't want to get involved or we don't want to give or we don't want to whatever. But here's this man in need. And in verse 4, after he asked for money, do you see what Peter and John did? They looked straight at him and said, look at us. He'd seen them coming, 
But rather than walking the other way, rather than going in a different direction, rather than putting their, their head down and make up some excuses, they looked at him and said to him, I want you to look at us. A couple of thoughts about this. You know, we know how Peter lived his life, right? Peter was an all-in, intense, let's-go-get-it guy. I imagine that Peter had this, this kind of stare of intensity, right? We know how, how John lived as well. John was the carer. John was the nurturer. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. And so as Peter looked with intensity, I'm sure John looked with love. And the combination of those two things, passion and love, and love and passion, is a beautiful combination that God can use. There was a man in need who couldn't meet his need on his own. In order to meet that need, he needed a power beyond himself. And he found that power beyond himself in the name of Jesus and through the mouth and the eyes of Peter and John. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him and said, look at us. Look at us. We see you. We see your need. We see that you think you need money and everything's going to be okay. But we see that you need something more than cash. We see that you need something physically and emotionally and socially and spiritually that money just isn't going to buy. And you can do all in your power to try and meet that need, but you don't have the resources within yourself to do it. You need to tap into a power beyond yourself. The lock and eyes, verse 6. As the man was expecting to get something from him, He's like, this is a winner. Ding-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling-a-ling. I, I got a good one here. He was expecting to get something, but God gave him something better than he expected. I think it's worth just reminding us that God often does the same thing for us, right? We go to God saying, I want this. And God says, you don't want this. Because if I gave you this, you would miss out on this, right? And, and so often, we ask God for things that are less than God's best for us, and he's expecting that. Peter says, I don't have silver and gold. It's been honest. And perhaps this lame beggar was a little bit deflated by that. But I imagine this is a run-on sentence and there wasn't much time to pause before he said, but what I do have, I give you. That's a profound statement. What I do have, I give you. Now he's going to be bold. He's going to be brave. 
He's putting himself in a situation where he's taking a risk, where he could be making a fool of himself. But what I love about his heart in this moment is that he realizes that on a worldly level, he cannot meet the need, but that he serves a God who can. And he knows it because he's seen it in his own life. And because God has met his need. God has given to him. Let me just point out as well, one thing that Peter is modeling here is that when God gives us something, God gives it to us to give to another. God does not give so that we can consume, so that we can say, thank you so much, that's great, let me go and enjoy that. God says, I want to give you, I want to bless you, so that you can give and bless others. Silver and gold, I don't have, but what I do have, which is the power of God in me, which is the movement of the Holy Spirit, which is the authority of Jesus, stuff that we've got, I'm going to give you that. Because what God has given to me is not meant just for me, it's meant to go through me to meet the need in others. Peter said, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, get up and walk. Fred was telling me this morning that he had to run his daughter to an appointment before he came to help me set up, and he was going a little bit fast. He was going a little bit fast through Castleberry, and he said, I wasn't worried because if I got pulled over by the Castleberry cops, I was just going to say that I know their chaplain, and I was going to go and help him. <laughs> and my thought was, there's not much power in the name of Andy. <laughs> right? There's, there's not. But there is power in the name of Jesus. It's the name above all names. It is Jesus, the one who was and is and is to come, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is power in his name. Peter and John aren't saying, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. I'm going to be famous for a long time through the scriptures. So maybe uh, I'm asking you to get up, go do it. It's not how it works. He realizes the power of Jesus at work in him. In Jesus' name, get up and walk. That's where our power rests, right? It's not in ourself. It's in the life and the person and the beauty and the hope of Christ. What do we give people? It's not us. It's not a better version of us. It's not a good enough version of us. It's Jesus. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That's quite a challenge. You know, it's interesting. I went to visit uh, Linda. Hi, Linda. After, hi, Linda. Everyone say, hi, Linda. Hi. <laughs> uh, the evening after she had her surgery. She had a hip surgery. You know the first thing they made her do within hours of coming out as the anesthetic? They make you walk. Because there's something about walking that restarts all the other systems of the body. 
in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Peter isn't just saying, get up so your legs can start moving again. He's saying, get up so that your life can start to work again. So that all the systems of your body and all the systems of your brain can start to move and start to function. And you can start to live again. And that needs you have social, emotional, spiritual, physical. It can be met in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. I love what happens next. This is really important for us, verse 7. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up. That's the sun connection. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. He didn't just say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, see you later. He didn't just pray for him and leave. He prayed for him and helped him. There has to be an and there. We are people of faith and works. We are people of proclamation of the power of Jesus, but also people who must reach out and lend a hand. It's not our voice and our proclamations that make the difference to a watching needy world. It's when we reach out and help people do what we're asking them to do. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. It was Jesus' power that healed him for sure. But this guy needed a hand, and Peter and John were there to offer the hand. He was in need, but it was in the power of Jesus that his need was met. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. Remember, the guy who's, who's writing Acts is Luke, who is a medical doctor. And the word for um, ankles and raising him up here talks about how the, the, the sockets kind of came back into place. So he jumped up and he started to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. He was a man in need who met God in the power of the name of Jesus. And now he was living in awe. He was saying, God, wow. He was jumping for joy. He was fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah that said the lame would be leaping when the Messiah came. He was in awe. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've been lame for all of my life and I get healed, probably the first place that I want to go is run back home and tell my mom or my dad, right? This guy goes right to the temple. Why? Because he wants to thank God. He realizes where this miracle comes from. He's in awe of God. He had this need that God met and it changed him. And in his worship of God, he decided to go to the temple. It says actually that he went with them. He said, whatever these guys do in the temple, I want to do it too. 
Whoever these guys are worshiping, I want to worship him too. Whoever this Jesus dude is, I want to follow him too. So they walked with him into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God. He was in need and now he's in awe. If that was the end of the story and we put a period there, that would be a beautiful thing because that is the gospel, that God meets us in our need, in the power of Jesus, to help us live lives in awe of our great God. But because our God is so great, there is not a period there. There is more to the story. Verse 9, as he was going into the temple, all people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate. You know when you see someone out of context and you have to do a double take? Happened to me last night at the soccer game. This lady came up to me who, um, I didn't even know she liked soccer. But I'm like, who are you? <laughs> you know, I didn't say that, but I kind of thought that because it was out of context. And I imagine that lots of people who were in the temple were like, I, I recognize your face, but I don't place you in the temple. Because he'd never been in, he'd always been an outsider. But now he was an insider. And as they saw him leaping and walking and praising God, we read that they were filled with awe and astonishment as well. A changed man changed people. They stood in awe of God too. They stood in awe of the astonishing things that God can do. But that's not the end of the story. Because God doesn't just change us because that's nice. He changes us to change others, but he wants to change more through us. So here's this man who'd been lame all his life, and he's doing this like little jig, I imagine, right? And people are like, wow, this is astonishing. And you know what happens when you see something astonishing happen in a group of people, right? A crowd develops. Hey, look at that guy. That, that's that guy. He's, he's here and he couldn't and now he can. And wow. And the energy was growing and the crowd got bigger and bigger and bigger. And Peter, ever the opportunist, said, let me tell you what's happened here. And he gets up. And the rest of Acts 3 tells us that he starts to preach. This is a great sermon that he gives. And at the end of the sermon, he points to Jesus because it's in his power that our needs are met, right? And we read that at the end of that, there are now 5,000 people in the church. That's up a couple of K more than before this incident. One man changed by God changes a small crowd, leads 2,000 people into the church. The Sadducees and the Pharisees don't like it. They arrest him. Peter and John, they pull him before the Sanhedrin. They throw him in jail. 
There's a big discussion among all the influential people in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was an influential city. They don't know what to do with him. But they couldn't deny that this man couldn't walk and now he could. And crowds of people and influences of people were changed because this one man was changed. The church was in its fledgling state. All of a sudden it had 2,000 new members. All of a sudden everybody was talking about it. This man's change fueled the church. It grew the church. It invited persecution on the church, but it was a persecution that pushed the church to the corners of the earth because one man was changed because the way God set it up is that changed people change people. Changed people change people. One man in need came into contact with the power of God and lived the rest of his life in awe of God. And as a changed man, his life changed many. Let me wrap up with this. There's a scripture verse in verse Peter 3, think. This says, always be prepared to give an answer for the faith that you have. This man was changed because Peter and John had an answer to their faith and his need. As they got up to preach, it wasn't like he sat down and studied for a couple of weeks like I do. He just got up and did his thing because he was prepared to give an answer for the hope that he believes. As changed people, let's be ready to give an example for the hope that we have. I was meeting with um, a lady and her husband a couple of weeks ago about this conference that I was at the other week. And she said, why do you do what you do? I'm like, Nice to meet you. (laughs) And I knew that to talk about a calling from God was a framework that wouldn't be helpful to her because it wasn't there. So I said, I really want to care for people. She said, oh, okay, well, why didn't you um, become a psychiatrist then? I'm like, oh, good question. (laughs) I said, yeah, I just don't think psychology is complete enough to to, to make a difference in everything that needs to be changed. She said, well, why don't you become a sociologist? I said, well, I did study some sociology, but it's not going to change enough on its own. And so she said, why do you do what you you do? And I, I had to get to this point where I had to give her an answer. I said, let me tell you what I do, why I do what I do. It's because I'm so enamored and amazed and astonished by the beautiful 
powerful, transforming life of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that I'm changed. And it's because of Jesus that we have a passion to change things. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. The answer is always Jesus. Here's a man in need. It's in the power of Jesus that is changed. But as he's changed, it's in the name of Jesus that others are changed as well. This glorious gospel that we hold so tight starts with us being in need and concludes with us being in awe of our great God.